Well, John, how you doing? I'm good. Episode 275. Can you believe that? I can. I just, it just, it's creeping up on me. Uh, it should have been higher than that because we've kind of been on this bi-weekly thing. Yeah, we've been, what, to 300 now? Yeah. I just don't feel like, I don't know. What do you, how do you feel about it weekly? First of all, it's, it's just hard to get the time. That's, that's, not, that's the biggest thing, is the time. Yeah, we've, we've made the effort on the time before, but my schedule is a lot busier than it used to be. I mean, it's, it's, it's easily like, what, four hours out of the day? Something like that, yeah. yeah. And um, that's just that's hard to do every week. Turn, it's, it's crazy how important four hours is. Yeah. So, uh, just, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, my kids are older and they've got all these activities, so I don't have as much uh, evening time as I used to, mm. which is when I would make up stuff. To catch up, yeah. 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 So, I don't know. And also, it's just, I don't, I just don't do a lot of Salesforce developments. I don't have as much Salesforce stuff to talk about. Why you gotta I'm brag? not bragging. I'm just... <laughs> <laughs> uh so, uh, yeah, I just feel like I'm not in it as much, so I don't have as many hot takes as I used to. Oops. Well, that makes it difficult for me, since we're a, a Salesforce show, I have to come up with all the Salesforce topics. That's true, yeah. You're, that's part of your job. That's fine. I'll take it on. So I have, a, I have something just completely uh, random to start the show with. I want to tell you about this, though. So, uh, remember, did I tell you a couple weeks ago I made... Deep dish pizza, like 100% from scratch. Yeah. And it turned out fantabulous. Uh, about a week ago, actually, I, I, sent, I was telling my buddy of mine that, and he sent me this video of this uh, YouTube video of a guy that did like a, hey, I've been perfecting the best New York style pizza you can make at home, like with normal home equipment, mm-hmm. not no special pizza ovens or any of that kind of crap. And uh, I watched it and it just immediately, I'm like, okay, I got to do this. <laughs> You're not talking about the guy that modified the oven, are you? No, no. Okay. So, d- basic stuff. I mean, some implements, but no modifications, no expensive appliances or any of that kind of stuff. Um, and there's one thing that he did different than what I normally do that I was like, oh, I didn't think about that. That's, that's the solution to my problem. So, my problem with doing, because the way we do pizzas, you know, like non-thick non 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 crust, like, mm-hmm. you know, normal thinner crust, is uh, on, on a pizza stone. So, you know, whether it's in the oven or whether it's um, on the grill, we'll do them both places. Mm-hmm. But you put the pizza stone, you let it heat up for like at least 30 minutes. An hour is better. Because when you slide the pizza onto it, you know, it's got so much thermal energy built up because the pizza stone has a lot of thermal mass. And that's how you get to, that's the way you get the properly, you know, browned mm-hmm. uh, the bottom of the, of the pizza. So that's definitely a necessary step. The problem I've had is that I can get that hot enough usually, but the it the bottom ends up cooking before the top does, and you don't, you know, I kind of want that nice brown, almost blackened bits around the crust, you know, of a that you're going to get on a, like a pizza that's made in a correct in a, in a good pizza oven, whether it's the the big commercial stainless steel ones or the you know Italian Neapolitan mm-hmm. style ones, you know, the brick ovens and stuff, right. Well, what this guy did was he just put the pizza. He set his oven rack to the to the second highest rack, mm-hmm. and that's and then he and then he has a stone on. Of course, it lets the stone heat up, but because he puts it on that second highest rack, it's closer to the top, and so you get more direct radiant heat coming down onto the top of the pizza that gives you those crispy bits that I've been 
feel like I've been lacking. Mm-hmm. In fact, I almost bought one of those expensive, you know, pizza ovens. Yeah, I've seen this. Only reason I didn't, I'm glad I didn't, because I, st- I do want to try give this a shot. Is because I don't have anywhere to put it. I really don't have anywhere to put it. Is the problem? Yeah. I'd, I'd have to figure out some way to. I don't know. Um, a lot of them are, are outdoor units because they get so hot. Yeah. Oh, I this, mean, really. I this one's out. If you're going to make like a traditional what Neapolitan pizza and everything, it's it's that temperature that you have to get. So you can get that leopard, what they call leopard spotting, which is the kind of the little burnt burnt little ch- chunks on the on the crust, which I love. Yeah. Um. But the other thing this guy does a little bit differently than what I have is he discovered a while back, he did some experiments uh, that using what's called, I guess it's called a baking steel mm-hmm. is actually more effective than the stone. Yeah, I've heard that too. And so you can get these thick, just like square or rectangular, just, they're just big sheets of steel. Yeah. Um, and so I bought one. It came in today, which is great because today's Thursday, which is what? It's dad cooking, dad cooks <laughs> day at my house. Yeah, and I'd had the start of the dough last night and everything because you know, gotta give the dough at least a day in the fridge. But this, I just I just got a notification from Amazon that it's been delivered. A little and picture with it on your doorstep. Yeah, this thing weighs like eighty pounds. Oh, yeah, it's um, you know my window is by the by the by the door, and I can see these guys dropping stuff off, and I can see how pissed they are when they have to drop off something heavy. I mean, I don't know, <laughs> I guess. I'm not joking. They are. I've seen them kind of just kind of toss it in there, and I can see them just kind of shaking their head. They're they're not happy lifting those big things. Yeah. But yeah. So I'm gonna I'm gonna do I'm gonna do both of these changes. I'm gonna do I'm gonna use a steel, and I'm going to put it on the second to highest rack setting in my oven, and see what that does. All right. Just don't burn down your house. I know. I've almost done that before. <laughs> if it gets too hot, you might find your oven will shut itself off. I have never heard of that. Yeah, there's safety measures in the in the ovens that I mean, won't the let oven, them get past. That's, that's what I meant whenever I when I asked you about was this guy modifying his oven because this other guy I watched he's like this I forgot what his name is but this French guy and he basically modded his oven but he had to redo all the shielding around all the electronic components a to remove all the restrictions and b to allow it to get hot enough. Interesting. Um. Yeah, I, I mean. The, if the oven thermostat's working correctly, you know, it shouldn't let itself overheat. It, and I'm assuming you didn't mod it. Right. But, oh, so I'm excited about it. I mean, I'm, I'm hungry. My mouth's watering just thinking about it. I'm excited. <laughs> well, John, you got any uh, Salesforce topics for us this week? I do. There was, um, there was a tweet. I don't know when this was. I think it's this guy, Sozman. I don't know what it's Robert. I see. What's his name? Something. Robert Sozman, yeah. Um, and he tweeted about, I guess, this, this Salesforce Architects um, Medium. Was it on Medium? Medium post? About package design? Did you see this? I uh, don't think so. Well, you know it's good, because... Oh, it's on Medium. <laughs> so the Salesforce Architects uh, Twitter, or... I don't know if they have, I think they have a, I think they have a Twitter thing. I don't know. But anyway, they, it was a medium post mm-hmm. and it was about, uh, it was, oh, and what was it called? Five anti-patterns in package dependency design and how to avoid them. That does sound interesting. Yeah. I did. You say you didn't see this? I didn't see it. Uh, see, I, okay. Can we have a quick meeting? Sure. I feel like we might, sh- should go back to, we, uh, throughout the week, we prep a Google doc of topics so that we both can see we both can put stuff on it. We can see what's on it, and we can 
prep. We can, you know, like it would have been cool. Like, and honestly, I didn't get a chance to read this as much as I wanted to thoroughly, mm-hmm. but we both could have read it and then had a, you know, ostensibly intelligent conversation about it. Sounds like a good idea. I mean, you can talk about it. I'm, I can yeah. react to it. Well, I mean, I can just open it up here. Oh, yeah. We can make this a reaction. <laughs> <laughs> a reaction episode. <laughs> Salesforce developer reacts. <laughs> yeah, no. Expert developer reacts to a medium post. <laughs> Non-Salesforce developer how many, how many reacts you, to Salesforce developer posts. How many YouTube hits do you think that would get? <laughs> Two. <laughs> All right. Um, I'm just going to skip to like the, just the headlines. So the anti, what is this? Um, mm-hmm. We're talking about adopting like package delivery based models instead of what they call org based delivery models or yeah, design. That's, that's or second generation packaging source source based. Yeah. Packaging, uh, hmm. which I want to get to, but there, there's still little limitations here and there, although I haven't researched it recently, but that's where I want to be. Um, we do some of that. We do some second-generation unpack- unlocked packages right now. And just, the new org-dependent stuff is source-based, I believe, as well. So, What do you mean by source-based? How is it not source-based? What is not source? What kind of package is not source-based? Because you're, you're deploying the source. You're not deploying, you're not doing an org and having the org do the packaging and deployment, if that makes sense. Oh, you package out out of source okay what is the package tied to because because in traditional it's tied to an org right well you still when you create your namespace and for the package Mm -hmm. you still have to create a dev org and have that namespace and then the the new way is that you have to link it to your dev hub that that namespace org to your dev hub right and then you can start creating scratch orgs based on that and now you're building code and source off off of that scratch org but when you go to package, it's not dependent on the scratch org. It's just pulling the bits of source, creating that package, running whatever routines it needs to do, and then generating the package. So are packages, this type of package, like the unlocked packages, are they exclusively like a source-based thing? Or is there, because in the, back in the old days with like with managed packages, when you create a package, it goes into like Salesforce's global registry of packages that are available. You get that ID and all that crap. Mm-hmm. Do Unlock packages? Are they like when I create an unlock package? Is that, is that known to Salesforce, or is it you know like in their global registry of packages, or is this just something that is some convenient thing that helps me push metadata to orgs better? And there's actually no, I don't know, like grander entity of a package. Um, I'm trying to trying to pick apart your question, but I think the real dependency is the namespace. Because you okay. can create a package without a namespace. You can create a package without an, okay. Or an unlocked, I think an unlocked yeah. package, I believe. Because yeah. the other thing is, like, with the packages, I mean, you want to, I mean, again, uh, Salesforce, they're, they're kind of they're so slowly, you know, moving on this. But, I mean, the idea with packages, surely, is that it's, it's a way to make composable software. And they're still not even close to there yet. But, you That's know, if, the, if, I made a, if I make a package called, you know, Jeremy's Package, which I don't know. Some may be interested in. <laughs> and took me a bit. And you want to? And you want to? You want access to my package? Mm-hmm. Which I always, of course, do. you do. <laughs> <laughs> then you should be able to create a package and say this depends on Jeremy's package. Which you can. But that means that it's 
that package is known to some kind of registry or repository or something. Within your when in, within the package, I think it's the package JSON file, and I know this stuff. I just don't have it memorized. But within your package, whenever you set up your project, you can define what the dependencies are. That way, it enforces by, that just dependency. by the name of the package, or is it an ID or? It's an ID. It's an okay. tell it the ID. Okay. Although it's weird because in some places you do use the name of the package. It's it's really inconsistent and weird how you can do both in some cases. And I don't know all the edge cases of when to use what. Um, I just know that most of the time I try to use the ID as much as possible. Yeah. I can tell you that this, I was reading this article and it, it's very triggering, honestly. This? Yeah, oh yeah, it brings up lots of past trauma in my life. <laughs> uh, okay, anti-pattern number one. Using packages to create silos and technical debt. I don't know what that means. Yeah, okay, well, let me read the description. An unlock package can be a useful tool to enable different product owners to manage blah, 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 but it is inappropriate to, te- to treat each package as if, as if it is totally independent territory and to allow teams to develop and design packages that don't take into consideration how the package will interact with other apps and share resources in the same Salesforce org. I mean, so here's their example. Um, like, okay, the one automation tool per object. So often we find different application teams. This is actually, this is one of the controversial ones that people are talking about on Twitter. Often we find application teams, different application teams, make their own choice of automation tool based on their own scope and requirements. The end result is mixed and potentially conflicting automation on key objects such as accounts, contacts, cases, and opportunities. This kind of technical debt can introduce significant performance issues and even runtime errors. Sure. Of course. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is why the, uh, this, is, uh, this is part of, this is one thing that's very triggering for me, which is an odd term, but the trigger-based development model. It's just, it's, it's just so limiting and has, it brings a lot of problems with it. I mean, yes, database triggers at a fairly, very low level are a useful thing, but they're not. You don't want to. You don't build enterprise applications in Oracle PL SQL, which is basically what Apex is, kind of. I don't know. I've seen it done. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you can to some degree, but I mean, I mean, I, you can you can host your entire business logic in SQL store procedures and yeah. everything. I mean, it's it's been done. Yeah. Um, that's a whole other can of worms that we won't get into. Um, anyway, th- I said the way to avoid this is to have a trigger handler framework. But then it says, what happens when you have multiple packages that need to introduce automation to one common object? The solution is to use dependency injection in the code for your trigger handlers. It says, with this approach, your trigger handler simply calls an injector service to load an appropriate automation or uh, automation configuration. And I would argue this is actually not the dependency. It's not like dependency injection pattern. It's more of a service locator pattern. But yeah, yeah, tomatoes, tomatoes. I mean, they're describing TDTM is what, what they're describing. That um, framework that we use on in EDA and, and, and nonprofit. Well, so TDTM is a, is a trigger handler framework, right? Would you call yes. that? Yeah. yeah. Um, it's table driven. Um, I don't know about the dependency injection part, though. I mean, I don't think... I mean, you set up... If there isn't one already set up, then you set up a trigger that does nothing more than, than in the call the, the TDTM framework, which then looks at the table, looks to see what handlers are registered, and then executes them based on their order. 
Yeah, I just don't see a dependency injection of that. So I, I think what they're describing here is a different approach to the problem. A I little think, bit of. I think they're approach. trying to describe the same thing, but I think the terminology is getting lost. Okay, I just I've looked at TDTM many times, and I, it's I, not I dependency see. injection. Yeah, it's not. And so I think what they're describing here is is a slightly different approach than TDTM. I mean, because with the table driven thing, that's that's kind of how you're injecting things in. Is yeah, is uh, with, is th with that's data. where I get stuck on because yeah. you're you're still kind of defining. When you register it, you tell it what class, which I guess if you're, when you register it and you tell it what class to call, you're kind of performing a dependency injection at that yeah. point. And they're saying, uh, so back to this, at runtime, custom metadata or other runtime configuration data passed to the injector service controls how automation logic contained in different packages gets invoked. So I could see, you know, your, this uh, service registry thing, you have it. They could look at like a custom setting or a custom metadata to determine what implementation of a service it returns or something like that. And then, sure. Yeah. yeah. So this approach can also be extended to flows because you can use Apex to invoke a flow. So yeah. if you're using Apex to invoke your flows, then, but boy, that's, that is the tail wagging the dog. Yeah. I don't know <sighs> that I would go that route. I, I think it. I mean, it's uh, it's one of those things that's really hard to discuss because now that we have um, triggered flows, meaning we can do before and after, con I believe after, we can do after now, context on flows, um, it opens up a certain amount of flexibility and you can keep things in flow and you don't have to mess with anything else. But in terms of just trying to orchestrate all your automation to make sure it happens in a very specific order, we don't have a good way of doing that. So you might, in that scenario, wrap the execution of your flow in an apex so that you can get it to participate in that in that schema yeah i mean <clears throat> right that's I, I wish I, I don't know enough about packaging to know how that would if there's an alternative way to do that but well, we're not even talking about packaging right now they're, they're just talking about a way to kind of manage the performance of all this automation where they'll overlap um yeah across packages Right, so like, let's say you install three or four different packages in your org, and they all want to have account triggers. That's not going to work. Well, well, that's what that's why they're saying to do something like this. Well, if if they're talking about the perspective of a single org, meaning we're not, when we say packages, I, I often think something that's going to be on the app exchange. And if you have two packages on the app exchange, unless they each have dependencies on each other, they both can't okay, have. So let's set the a universal. Yeah, trigger so let's let's set the context. Is that's that's not the situation they're talking about here. They're really talking about typical corporate development. Where instead of just your instead of having the happy soup, what do they call the happy soup now? I'm sure there's a you know a, a cloud 3.0 term for that. Yeah, I don't know. Um, the org the org development model. I, I think that's the cloud 3.0 term for it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah this uh, is something they they wanted people to do, but it can't work that way because of the dependencies. Like you mentioned, if I'm going to create a package and it has a dependency on that framework, on that let's say it's just on the table itself then I have to include that table in my package because whenever it goes to create the package, it's going to check all the dependencies. And that's the problem with that model. That's yeah, why right. they're coming out with org, the org dependent package. What was it? What I call it? Or it's something, it's, it's like org specific packages or something because it doesn't evaluate the, the dependencies until it tries to install it, not before, not when it creates the package. And that's going to allow you to create packages that does not have all of the dependencies in it so that in this model, you can deploy a small bit of code knowing that as long as that dependency already exists in the place you're deploying to, then it'll deploy fine. So you can do that. You can do that now. Mm -hmm. um, 
Okay. Well, agree to disagree. You can you can create packages. You can have unlocked packages that depend on other packages. That's step one. So if you wanted to have a like a base, let's say you wanted to have like this. Hang on. Let me let me get a sentence out. Let's say you have this injector service that we're talking about, like a trigger, like some kind of trigger injector, like or dependency injection service. You can declare that in like a base package, and then have three or four other packages that do different functionality in your org all depend on that base package. And then they can see they can see those dependencies. So they can, like say there's a class, an injector class. Those three or four packages that depend on your base package can then see that. They can see that. They get visibility into it. Yeah. And what I'm saying is the reality of trying to manage all those dependencies is just insane. Well, that's what Salesforce... I, I actually don't think it's insane. I mean, there's still plenty of things that are that provide a lot of friction on this platform. So maybe that's what you're calling insane. <laughs> maybe we're agreeing just well, with I mean, imagine words. if you broke all of your features up into tiny little modules that you can kind of isolate and deploy. Well, now you now you've the dependency graph on all of that is going to get insane. Uh, but if if you know you're building a module and it's going it's going to it's going to end up in this, this source system and you know what the dependencies are going to be, because you're not trying to distribute it outside of your org or outside of your kind of self-contained ecosystem, then the org-dependent model works, because I don't have to include the dependencies in my package. I don't have to create a hard dependency. All I have to do is create the package, and when it deploys, it's at that point that it checks to see if it has the dependencies, and it will install just fine without having to ma maintain that individually. Yeah. Because a lot of times with these unlocked packages are what are going to be org-dependent packages. Um, you're not probably not going to have a namespace. I mean, you might have one global namespace, right? But yeah. trying to manage the dependencies across all of them, maybe you have like a, a business logic dependency, and you have like some kind of logger dependency, and all that kind of stuff. And then when you try to graph all that, it's going to be insane. Uh, here's one thing that a lot of people are asking right now, which is, <clears throat> okay, Salesforce, you're telling me that I need to split my org's code and metadata up into a bunch of packages because better. And really, what we're saying is, if if we're not gaining the benefits of like reusable packages and com and composition, which they still haven't solved yet, then why why do I need to split my org up? I mean, the, one of the reasons, actually, the, the probably the the best reason I've heard so far is that. Maybe if you can achieve this holy grail, your deployments might be easier. But I'm very skeptical about that. I think you're trading one problem for a bunch of other problems at this point still. Yeah. I mean, it's... I think it's all moving towards the idea that we'll get to more of a CICD type type deployment architecture. Yeah, and can, that's the thing. Can you, let's say that I'm, I'm on package A team um, and you're on package B team. Can, can we, and, but we're, you know, big, we work at a big company, right? We lots of, lots of developers where, you know, we work for, I don't know, uh, GM, some big company. Mm -hmm. Lots of departments and Salesforce developers, but one big org, let's say, even though that's probably not the case. Let's say it's one big org though. Um, and there's different teams working on different packages. Can can you can I actually um, independently like compile, test, deploy, and automate all that of, of my team's package? Um, depends I, on how you have it. Yeah, I mean it's 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 a definitely a depends question. I mean, yeah. 
I think you can. I think you, I think, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know, keep teasing this, but I'm, Cumulus CI kind of solves that problem as well. I mean, uh, you, yeah. you tell it the environments, and whenever you say, set up my test environment, it does the work of grabbing all the dependencies, installing them into that scratch org, installing your dependencies. Like package dependencies? Any dependency. Even, that's the nice thing about it, is the dependency doesn't have to be a package. It could be another, it could be a zip file of metadata as well. Yeah, yeah. It could be a, a, a set of CSV files to, to deploying and seed the data. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what's nice about it. Yeah. And that's what you need in that environment, the GM environment, which is a way to, to automatically set up your environment so that you can run all the tests and, and everything out. You know, you develop in isolation, you get your features, and then you plug that into your, your testing and all your automation, everything should set everything up so that it can test your incoming code with that code and make sure everything, first of all, make sure it can integrate with it, meaning deploy integration. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it can run all the tests and make sure everything still works. Yeah. And maybe, I mean, maybe they're closer on this than what it seems like to me, but anyway. Okay, second anti-pattern is designing monoliths instead of easy-to-use services. I mean, sure. Yeah, I mean, yeah. They're saying, you know, separation of concerns. Their example is, let's say you have a service in a base package that reads account data. A SQL statement in the service has a predefined list of fields based on the data model at the time when the package was created. When additional fields are added to the account object by a different package, the shared service must also be updated to reference the new field, which so we have a major package dependency problem. The arrows are pointing in the wrong direction. Or if teams can update the base package, the new package has to create its own service to read account data. So it's just bypassing the, the data service. Um, but they're saying how to avoid this is using uh, instead of instead of hard coding logic or data information you can e- it can be easily handled by applying the concept of dynamic field injection in the apex enterprise pattern selector layer <laughs> implementation you have to like that's a that's a fancy name yeah the apex enterprise patterns <laughs> If, that's how you know Apex is great, John. It has enterprise pattern. Enterprise. Enterprise. This isn't small business. This is enterprise patterns. Yep, because I loved using the Microsoft Enterprise Library. Because yeah. all, was, all the so other software fun. development patterns weren't good enough. We have, we have Apex. You have C-sharp enterprise patterns, John, and Java enterprise patterns? Or do you just have software de- design patterns? I don't know. You tell me. I have cross-stitch patterns. Do you? Yeah. You never made anything for me. You're not that special. (laughs) (laughs) Damn it. Uh, Okay, so instead of their their answer is just to use a is just to bake a a pattern in this thing, I guess, uh, into your data service. Instead of hard coding the list of fields to the query, the selector class should construct the field list by using custom meta. That's that is actually their the crux of their answer on all these. Use custom meta metadata or runtime configuration data. That can be set in separate packages. So then, okay, so let's say you do have runtime configuration data. Let's say it's a mm-hmm. whatever, custom metadata of some sort. Now you have different packages. So let's say you got you know, three or four different packages that need to use your account data service. So all, what are all, can all those packages then change the custom metadata to say what fields they want? How do they not override each other? They would end up 
overriding each other. Yeah, I know. Why don't you just allow the component that's using the data service to specify which fields it wants at runtime? Like, hey, give an account with, give me an account with this ID and return these, and, you know, query these seven fields. Of course, you're using dynamic SQL, but yeah, that's the way the database world generally works anyway. I mean, most of the time, that is what you're doing if you're talking mm-hmm. managed packages. Okay, let's move on to three. Check my text here. Okay. Um, anti-pattern three. Writing code to get the implementation done instead of instead of implementing the right code. <laughs> so the anti-pattern three is don't implement wrong code. <laughs> okay. Really? Because uh, I do that all the time. Yeah. <laughs> so I was, wasn't sure. Well, now you know not to. Aren't you glad that we covered this article? I need the little, the little rainbow thing. The more you know. <laughs> okay, so their example is: let's imagine an abstract class logger with two concrete implementations: a custom logger object and a platform event, platform event-based logging. Write code specific. Oh, sorry, writing code specific to a particular implementation would be something similar to blah blah blah. They have a little code snip in here, creating a custom event or a, what are they called? Platform event instance. Um, this is too much code. Anyway, they said to avoid this, there are design principles for this type of... I wonder if they're Apex Enterprise design principles. <laughs> <laughs> Identify the aspects of your app that vary and separate them from those that say the same. Well, that's the... Um, uh, that, that's really the... I mean, yeah, what is that? What's that principle? There's a name for that principle. Darn it. Things should have, I can't think of the name of it, but things should have one reason to change. It's really the single responsibility principle. If you're, That's if you're, what I would think, yeah. Oh, yeah, okay. Uh, and then number two is program to an abstraction, not an implementation. Now, this really triggers me. This is one of the ones that triggers me. Because I tell you, you know, don't, um, you know, don't code to a hard-coded logger. You know, you should have some logger lookup service that returns you an instance of some logger interface and you don't have to which is great Mm -hmm. i I totally get it except the object orientation capabilities of apex and the fact that you have i know we have packages and that change a little bit but they're just pretty much the one namespace you know it gets it gets difficult you know you end up with this really long list of i mean if you have a you know you have one namespace for all your classes and all your interfaces. Well, we're, now we're going to have a lot of, lots of interfaces. But well, logger is also a poor example because the whole point of having an interface for a logger is you can log to different mediums. You can log to a database. You can log to a file system. You can log to whatever. And with Apex, you're kind of limited on what you can log to. Oh, no, not at all. You could, you could log to a, a service that does a call. You could log to custom objects. Right. You could log to platform events. Well, right? I think it's a good example. I you know? a poor example. Okay. What, what's, what's a better one, John? No, I don't. Because I'll, I'll, I'll let these guys know. No, I don't know. <laughs> no. I just like to, to complain. <laughs> yeah, well, that's kind of what I'm doing here. It's called trolling. Yeah, I know. Okay. <laughs> Anti-pattern four. Short-changing unit testing across package boundaries. Imagine you're testing code that relies on another object's internal state or implementation from another package. Uh, well, you shouldn't be relying on... I'm not sure what they mean by that, but you shouldn't Read be relying again? on internal... Imagine you're testing code that relies on another object's 
internal state or implementation from another package. Anyway, let's con I'm not sure what they mean, but let's continue. To get your test method to work, you, you could just make calls from the method to the controlling package or its dependencies, but there are a couple of problems. First is that the dependencies may not be finalized or exist. Secondly, since the test method is tightly coupled to its dependencies, changes to the latter will require the rerun of all dependencies uh, or an update to the dependent unit tests, methods, and packages. Neither of these is ideal. Well, I mean, you should be depending on a package's publicly exported symbols, meaning... I don't know if that's what they mean. I, 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 think what if, I think what they mean is that one package will maybe change the account name to XYZ, whatever. And your package layers on automation on top of that, and you're expecting the account name to be XYZ. But because you're executing your code in isolation, how do you get their package to run their automation when you run yours? I don't think that's what they're talking about here. No? But it's, this is pretty abstract, so it's hard to tell. Um, okay. I think what they're talking about is... Um, it's talking about re relying on internal state of another package. And that's why you, this, is, this goes back to um, encapsulation. That's the right that's the word I was thinking of. You know, you need to, you know, having public interfaces. Because once you publish an API with public interfaces, that's a contract. And you can't just, you can't really change that. And so you have to be, you should only expose things that you want your clients to depend on. Because those things aren't right. going to change. So you want to preserve as much privately in your package as you can. As much you only want to pub you only want to publish like the minimum surface area, the minimum API, and keep everything as else as, as private as, as black box as possible. So that you can refactor, you can change that stuff, and you don't have clients de depending on the particulars of the internal state of your of your package. And so. I agree with that. Yeah, so client I mean, I packages, if, client code need to only depend on public things, and those, I mean, you you can't change those at that point. I mean, it, unless it's like unless you unless it's like you know you control all the packages and you can do a coordinated, you know, change of of a public interface. But in general, if you don't have that kind of control, then it's a public interface and it really can't change. You can release a new version of it, mm -hmm. or maybe you can add, you know, some of the most. You know, if you, you know, remain, you know, or preserve some kind of binary uh, compatibility, you know, you can add things to an interface, but you can't change the things already there, and you can't, certainly can't remove things from it. Yeah. Anyway, there, the way to avoid this is to keep tests easy to run by isolating tests from dependencies. Um, isolating tests from dependencies. To isolate dependencies, you can create an interface for these to, um, to enable you to have multiple implementations. Oh, they're saying just mock stuff out. Yeah, mock stuff out. Well, I wonder if what they're talking about is, um, so when I'm using custom metadata types, when you access that data, um, unlike everything else, it, it exists without the use of see all data because it's metadata. Okay. So if I create a metadata record and I query it in my test, it's going to pull what's in that metadata. And depending on how you're set up in the package and the security around those fields, it could mean that someone has changed those. So what I do is I load them just to show that I can load them. But then whenever I run my tests, I usually have some kind of abstraction that manages the, that layer of those settings. And I'll inject all new settings so that I can control what those settings are so that my tests yeah. know what to expect. Again, you're, you, you keep going back to data. I don't, think that's, I don't think they're talking about data here. I think they're talking about code. 
you know, exposed symbols, APIs, and then, and also internal state. Yeah. But, but I, I mean, I think what you said that's covers that though. So but maybe so. Yeah. And that's the problem with some of the stuff. It's so abstract. It's like, it's, it's hard to tell what they're talking about these conversations. Anyway, they're kind of all the same. Okay. Uh, anti-pattern five, creating tightly coupled packages through event handling. Well, this is interesting because supposedly, and I, again, I haven't, I haven't read this. I haven't read, the, I, I read like the first two. <laughs> um, but events are supposedly the way to uh, prevent coupling. Events. Yeah. Platform yeah. events. Uh, just the, the events in general and the idea of, you know, whether it's things like the observer pattern or just, or event buses. Okay. You know, things can communicate with events. Um, and you can listen for events and you don't have to have any not pre, you know, pre-knowledge of who's sending these events. Don't, right. You know, what, they're, what, the, what its address is, how I can call it to get its events. All you need to know is just, you need to be able to just get on like some kind of event bus or it's like you need some kind of generic listener. Yeah. And then you can listen to events and you're decoupled from the things producing those events. Yeah. But apparently you can create tightly coupled packages through event handling. Well, they say event handling. Let's see what this means. Okay. So it's common for one package to need to be notified of an event occurring in another package. I want to pause for a second because I've been thinking about this. This is, this is also really tricky because this conversation always goes back and forth between triggers. People who think triggers are bad tell you to use events. And then, you know, events have all these problems and then it goes back to triggers. And the, the reality is, is like, triggers are event handlers. <laughs> yeah. Let's not forget that. Just because we're using the word event instead of the word trigger doesn't mean that they're fundamentally not really similar things. Right. <laughs> Which I, mean, in my head. I, I mean, I can have a trigger handler or just a, a trigger, I guess is what they're called in Apex. That, yeah. And I don't have to, I don't know who created that trigger event that's happening. I don't care. It, it's kind of like a bus and I'm just listening for events. Mm-hmm. So maybe triggers aren't all that bad. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's see. The downside to this approach is that it can create tightly coupled packages. Did I read the, uh, yeah. Uh, they have to know about specific APIs exposed to each other. If you change a service parameter or implementation in one package, you may have cascading changes in other packages. Uh, to avoid this, use dependency injection. Uh, dependency injection-based event subscription pattern that enables communication between packages while, ke- while keeping them as loosely coupled as possible. Packages B and C subscribe to a convert lead event by adding entries in the event subscription custom metadata, including which class within the package should be called to handle the event. I just, again, I don't see how this is, I I can achieve the same principles with triggers. I mean, they're not, I can, I can subscribe to trigger events Mm -hmm. without having any idea, any knowledge of what's producing those events. But that is limited to data events. But the examples they give are data events. So a lot of times there's, you know, there's all kinds of other, maybe, maybe you want a, an event every time someone, you know, launches a, or goes to a certain screen or does a thing that's not necessarily a, doesn't result in a database transaction. That, that's the problem with, I guess, one limitation of triggers is that. Well, we have the messaging service about, on, on Lightning, which is Which that. is similar, right? Yeah. yeah. Similar thing. So sometimes you need events that just, that aren't necessarily, you know, data transaction events they're some other kind of event mm-hmm. someone did something or you know, right. something some some web service 
or something something came in on an Apex REST web service. We're not writing anything to the database, but we just need these, you know, there's we have these various services running that need to know about those events. Right. Yeah, that was it. It's actually pretty interesting. It was a good article. Um, overall. I mean, it gets you thinking. One of those things that gets you thinking. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, the, the, that's the thing. I mean, there's a lot of people at Salesforce that are thinking about the right things. It's just, we're it just, man, they're just stuck on really legacy stuff here. And that's very, it's, you know, when you have, you know, how many ever, you know, hundreds of thousands of customers on your platform, it's how do you, <laughs> how do you migrate that thing? Yeah. You know, how do you, how do you add, how do you layer new stuff? I mean, really, ideally, you could just like replace a lot of this. I mean, if you, that's the downside of working on legacy platforms is that you, you can't, you can't get rid of it. You can't replace it. You just have to figure out how to keep layering stuff on, yeah. you know, to make it more modern, more whatever to, 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 uh, I don't know, make people happy. Yeah, I mean, it's the same problem that Windows struggled with, you know, that their biggest thing was maintaining backwards compatibility to the point where it, it just got too big of a beast. Yeah. You know, and, and Apple, I, I felt like they did the right thing. They they cut it off and said, here's an emulator. It's, it's definitely a different, totally different approaches coming yeah. out from different, because people get so mad that their, that their Mac they bought seven years ago and now won't run the latest operating system. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, okay, yeah, that's true. That that and that can suck. I mean, I've been in that position, but with certain Macs that I still are hold, I'm still holding on to, and I still use, and I'd I'd rather they be able to upgrade to the latest operating system, but um, but they they can't. Yeah. And if that's what you want, if you want a machine that'll that you know can stay on the latest operating system for you know ten plus years, then definitely Mac is not your platform. Windows would be, Linux probably Linux, would be. Yeah, Linux, Linux, Windows. <laughs> it's just Macs. It's just that's just not what they optimize for, and. Again, that, that sucks for those cases, but it's actually great for other cases. Like most of my personal use, you know, the way I use computers, um, I, I like that Mac model better because I, I get to enjoy the benefits of that. Yeah. It allows innovation to happen in a way that can happen on platforms that optimize for the opposite thing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, browsers are a good example of that. I mean, the fact that they auto-update, the fact that we can kind of, in some ways... In some ways, we've trained at least most corporations not to lock into a specific version of a browser. I mean, there's still some that do. There's still some that require you have your little what, where the ActiveX components is what they were. I think uh, I'd be. I don't think any of that exists. No, I'm sure it does. You think so? Yeah, wow. I'm sure there's some companies out there that has some kind of tool that was written ten years ago that they rely on, and it can't. They have one machine dedicated to doing that one task <laughs> that can't be upgraded. It's it's air gapped because it's so insecure. Yeah. You know. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you want to do this you go to that machine yeah <laughs> you do that wow take your thumb drive <laughs> yeah right yeah it's got, i'm sure it's, that exists yeah. but yeah i mean it, it does kind of stifle innovation in a, in a lot of ways that you can't just cut off the tail but um also think of these browsers that, that still have to deal with they, they still are compatible with broken ass html and javascript but it, it fixes it like it fixes it on the fly you know yeah but that was the worst thing because it was IE did that ie fixed your broken html and it was the worst thing for the internet it's terrible yeah you have to close tags and just there's there's a million things yeah. that these browsers will try to fix including just i mean myriad of like css crap and i mean the flip side is that when we're talking about something like developing custom code if the if you're not set up for that kind of continuous innovation yourself, then it can be a daunting task to try to keep up. Um, let's use Lightning for an example. You know, when, when Salesforce said we're moving to Lightning and 
and nothing's backwards compatible. You can't. I mean, you can still use classic, but Actually, you they, really need you to know, move over to, to this fair, lightning thing. They, I mean, they, it is a different platform, and the, like the code necessarily is like it's not compatible. But I mean, you can still run lightning and classic, and you can. And but they, but remember what the some of the the cons to to lightning implementing lightning was that crap. I just spent a million dollars building out my system and now I have to spend another million dollars to build it out in lightning to modernize it. I mean, that's just, that's just business, man. I'm just saying. Yeah, I know. I agree. I it's mean, just, that's just one of the con, one of the pros of having seamless backwards compatibility. I, it's job security for us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, there's, I just think it's inevitable unless, and if, you know, if, if, you know, if you want to take advantage of modern innovations, then you have to be willing to continue to invest. And it, that applies to the, the technology vendors as well as the users and consumers. Yeah. Well, I wanted to piggyback off of that because I, I was also reading something about packages, and this was something that came out in January, or at least was published out in January, and it's called the uh, SGD. <laughs> Let me guess so that. The, what, this is a Salesforce thing? Yeah. Packages. Let's see. Oh. It's, um... Oh, I'm trying to think of something good, John. Something good day. Yeah, well, that's true. Yeah, <laughs> sir. Sorry, good, good day. No, sir. sir good, good day. day. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, goddamn it, <laughs> John. Uh, I said sorry. <laughs> you are quoting or spoilers. You were quoting. GD. Yeah, I'm trying to trying to ease your editing. Yeah. Um, no, it stands for SFDX Git Delta. Although. We're using SFDX as one word, even though it's an acronym itself. Get Delta. This already sounds... It's, it's an Inception acronym. SFDX, Get Delta. It's, oh, it's a, it's a recursive acronym, right? Yeah. 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 Uh, so it's a plugin. It's, it's not an official... It's kind of an experimental plugin. Okay. Uh, which is nice about DX, um, that they've built it out and they're able to kind of experiment with things. You're able to kind of install one of their things they're working on as a plugin. Test it out. Those kill it if the, it's not working for you. The CLI developers must have read this article that we just went over. Oh, they wrote that. What are you talking about? <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, so it's a plugin that allows incremental deployments from Salesforce source format tracked in a Git repository. Um, so, so think. Can you read that again, real quick? Say that again. It's a a plugin that allows incremental deployments from Salesforce source format tracked in a Git repository. Oh, so it pull like pulls down your. Git repo and then deploys that just automatically. That's kind of interesting. So what it does is it it uh, pulls from Git the deltas and and it creates basically the package file and, and destructive changes from that Git. Mm. Um, the idea being that Again, currently back, back to, to what Solenopsis did ten years ago. <laughs> We're still <laughs> the, there. The idea being that sure you have all your entire code base in source, uh, but right now as a CI tool you're basically taking that entire repo and deploying that whole repo. Yeah. Um, and so what this is trying to do is mitigate that by looking for deltas, looking for changes since the last release, and then only deploying the things that have changed. Okay. So I'll put that in the show notes. It's nothing too extraordinary to expand on. It is experimental, um, but I, I like the idea of it. Yeah. It's well, even for non-package development. Sometimes I lose track or okay, let me put it this way. Sometimes the people I'm working with don't always log what they changed. And yeah. so being able to, put in a repo and just kind of have something do a delta for me of what's not there would be nice. And I don't know if this is a thing for, for human consumption or if it's just more just to have more efficient deployments. You know what I mean? Like, hey, if I've only changed a couple of, you know, 
custom field labels don't deploy my entire 300 meg metadata package just deploy those two things i changed yeah which is nice yeah and sometimes you have to have that especially when you run up against that 400 megabyte unzipped metadata limit <laughs> which is not hard which is which is something you've come across because you oh, yeah. you did kind of do the whole full source deployment stuff yeah and well and just in in really large orgs you know yeah so yeah we had to split stuff up this is interesting uh i saw this in slack right before we started but it was pretty pretty uh uh relevant to what we we're talking about uh, this is from mick he says uh so looking at a code base at my new job has me pondering how do people feel about huge levels of abstraction inheritance factories etc uh you know standard object-oriented stuff you'd see in enterprise java project uh, versus a more basic approach, only using concepts when required makes sense, rather than as default, essentially trying to keep things as simple as possible. Um, I mean, you know, I always, I always like to kind of do whatever's the simplest. Except, you know, sometimes that is sometimes that works against you, and so you have to just then you have to bump up a little bit, and like you have to, you know, you have to start adulting. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, use just enough of them. And again, you know, there's there's friction with Apex and the Salesforce platform on this stuff. You don't don't overdo it. Don't. And I, and I came from a Java background before I ever did Apex. So I, I and and I really I came from a place in in the Java world where you always programmed against abstractions, never against concrete implementations. <clears throat> which I think I think that community went a little bit too far with that. It's come back a little bit, a little bit more pragmatic now. Um, so I would say abstractions where they are going to add value for you. If there's no value, if you don't need to dependency inject it, like your logger thing or whatever, then don't do it. Yeah. Don't do it just for the sake of it. It's just, you know, if you need to refactor later, okay, fine. But for now, if you don't have multiple implementations or you have no reason for that, then don't do it. Yeah. Because it, it does, it just pollutes. I mean, the, one of the biggest things is it just pollutes your namespace. I mean, then you got to find some naming conventions. These things all kind of show up together. You know, like a pseudo package. Yeah. <laughs> Although I do guess um, there's, I forget what that feature is called. That is it DX that has where you can, you can almost group, th it kind of shows things in these quasi packages that it groups them together, even though they're not really packages. I forget what that's called. That's a thing though, I think. Oh, I don't know. Sure. Maybe that, yeah. and I don't know if it's just VS Code. I, I don't know. I don't have the right words for this. I just have noises coming out of my mouth. <clears throat> Uh, but yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. I think it, it's definitely one of those depends answers, and that's pretty much the feedback that's coming back on, on the channel. Uh, one person says, it depends completely on the current and planned complexity of the org. All orgs should have a logging framework and a trigger framework, but the level of robustness depends on the org shape, which I'd agree with. Um, this one's from Scott Wells. He says, the right answer is use the proper level of abstraction. Obviously, that's a punt, though. Generally, I... Start with uh, the straightforward approach and look for opportunities for abstraction reuse as they emerge, which is what you're saying. Yeah. Uh, after decades of doing this, I'm quite familiar with the many common abstraction patterns, though on the flip side, I also know that in Salesforce projects, it's best to start with, say, a trigger framework versus with the trigger anti-patterns. So there's certainly some instances where I think you should abstract immediately, but I don't think you should uh, be the immediate go-to. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's a good point. If you, listen, if you know you're going to need abstraction, like a trigger framework or or a you know um a a uh what are the um like a factory like a service factory to mm. give to give you 
some unknown implementation of a logger, if you know you're going to need that, then just do it up front. Yeah. But if you don't, then, I mean, my approach to <clears throat> really most of my development nowadays is I just, I, I don't like to get stuck in the, in like a design phase. I'll just start coding stuff. Now, given I'm working on things like Java and Kotlin, where it's really easy to refactor and the tooling is great. Um, but I'll just start, I'll just start building stuff and I'll get it working and I'll have some tests. But then I'll look back and I'm like, okay, this is kind of like a big God class here. This got mm -hmm. out of control. Okay. And then, because then you, after you build it and have something working, then you, because that's, that's that whole thing of like, you kind of always throw away the first version of everything because yeah. you didn't know when you started what you know now. Right. But you can, you can bring that down to a small scale. Like I can work for three or four hours, build something and then look at it and be like, ah, oh, yeah, this should be, that should pull this out and this should be a separate method and whatever and i have this whole i i definitely am having like i'm doing the same thing in these across these three different classes i'm gonna extract i'm gonna extract that out into like you know some kind of you know nugget of some sort yeah <laughs> <laughs> so it's so it's reused and just i don't have a bunch of um, duplicate code because du i mean duplicate code it does it does catch up with you the whole uh, dry right dry yeah and i have some comments about that in a little bit later but yeah i, I tend to agree i think I do the same thing. I try to just start coding. I do end up in a bit of a kind of design bubble, so to speak. Um, there have been times where I've just gone full interface straight ahead thinking I'm going to make this, you know, so that I can do dependency injection because I'm going to build this, this thing. And a lot of times when I get to the end of it, I realize, well, that's a waste. I'm never going to really inherit this. The concrete, the concrete implementation of this is so simple and it takes in most of the arguments it needs. There's really no need for an interface here. And I'm, it's not like I'm packaging it for someone else to create an API for them or anything. So a lot of times it's just code and then refine. It's that kind of whole iterative project process of kind of distilling your code down to, to I don't know, some kind of level of quality. Yeah. Um, you start with your big, big method. And that's, I think I, I talked about this before about how I code. I kind of outline my big method. I'll code everything, and I'll usually have one big method, but I have comments of when I'm going to start kind of a block of code, yeah. and then I'll go back through it, and I'll start pulling that stuff out into methods that make sense, so that it's readable. Yeah. Interesting. And yeah, whatever works for you, you know, but that was a good question. That's some good answers. Yeah. Uh, we could do some new stuff. I want to, can we, since we mentioned Apple, I actually just wanted to get your take on this, the, the discontinuing of some things. So iMac Pro discontinued and also the HomePod. Yeah, the HomePod, but there's a, there's a Home Mini that, that is still going to be you know, going. And I wasn't even aware of that product. I'm going to have to look that up real quick. HomePod Mini. What does it look like? Mm, almost like a ball. <laughs> really? It's the same thing as the home, as the big home oh. one. It's just smaller. Huh. Interesting. Kind of like the way the, what was the Alexa one? Oh, the puck or the pod or the no, what do they call this? The little puck one, yeah. It's kind of like it went from the big tower to the pucks, yeah. I can't, I'm looking for a photo of it in context and it won't show me one. No. Oh, there it is. Okay, so it's like the size of my coffee cup, yeah. Okay, you have any of those home pods? No, never did the home pod thing. No? That's why they discontinued it, John, because you're not supporting them. <laughs> hey, I don't have a reason to. How's my Apple stock supposed to go up if? You don't buy the stuff. I don't know. I'd only buy the stuff that is useful, and I just haven't found it useful. Oh, and that reminds me. Quick update. Because <laughs> this is this is actually new. I've I've never in this during this entire time we've done this show, I've not owned Salesforce stock directly. But the other day, I decided to open up 
my trading account back up and I bought some Apple and I bought some Salesforce. I didn't even try to time anything. I don't even know like if well, it was a good time to buy. Disclaimers everywhere. All the time. Well, I do know that. So <laughs> Apple's is off its high or Salesforce is off its highs quite a bit. So I thought, eh, can't be that bad of a time to buy. But of course it will be because <laughs> I bought because it. you bought. <laughs> In fact, let me. It's let me, all your fault if it takes a takes a dump. I feel like every show we should do a check in and see how Jeremy Stock is doing. <laughs> uh, I think I have it on my watch. I used to. So with Salesforce, I'm uh, since uh, since I bought it, I'm down uh, thirty six dollars. <laughs> <laughs> and my apple i'm down 39 dollars. it's it's a marathon not a yeah i know you know anyway yeah um what about the imac pro being discontinued is that a it's not a, it's not getting discontinued oh it's not no oh. the rumor is that they're prep they're discontinuing that because they're getting ready for the new models with the new chips and a whole new displays mm -hmm. okay so okay. a whole new design uh, which it hasn't had since it since its inception it really i mean it, the bezels might have gotten a little bit smaller or something like that and they try to make it look thinner but hasn't had a full redesign in in at all so the rumor is either i think in the april's when they're supposed to have their next event they might announce the new imax yeah there's supposed to be an event this month which i'm so i was like, so excited about because i want that apple tv and they it, the next event better have an Apple TV, or I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, issue it may, a, it may official not, complaint. As the a Apple TV might not show up in this event; it might show up in the September event. Oh, killing me! But yeah, they're supposed to have a whole new re redesign of the Apple TV. So as soon as I come out with, I'm buying probably three. That's, that's how many I need right now. <laughs> Trying to boost that stock, huh? Well, you're spending stock money that you don't have. Yeah, to so boost your stock. For, so for every you know two hundred dollar <laughs> Apple TV I buy, I'll get you know. 0.001 cents in return on my stock. <laughs> <laughs> do they pay dividends? I don't think Apple pays dividends. Yeah, I don't think they do. They could if they want to do it. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, so you had some news things. Yeah, because we were talking about Tableau earlier because you were kind of playing through your clips and I said, save that clip. Uh, so Amazon names Adam Solipsky, why can't I say that name, as head of AWS. So he's the former uh, CEO of Tableau. Oh, and he's the CEO of AWS now? Did they hire him from well, they, Tableau? They, or had he worked for Amazon? I don't recognize the guy's name. He's from Tableau. Okay, yeah, yeah he said that. And apparently Benioff was gearing or hoping to kind of put him in the CEO seat, I thought. Mm. At, least, at least that was the rumors because he would mention him quite a bit, I think last year or the year before. And so um, this was just this week that it was announced, so... That could be a good thing, because Salesforce does tend to lose some high-level people, but they also tend to kind of still converse. They yeah. still have to have good rela they still have good relations, so it's, it's probably going to be a good thing for Salesforce yeah. to have someone that they know in there. Interesting. Uh, I can keep going. Yeah, what was the, what's the guy's name? Andy Jassy, right? Is Adam Solipsky. Sil Do you know who Andy Jassy is? No. I guess. That's the Amazon CEO now. Oh, is it? He was the AWS CEO forever. And I'll tell you what, he, that guy left big shoes to fill because this guy, um, Andy Jassy, he, uh, if you ever, did you ever watch like the AWS invent keynotes or any of that kind of stuff? No. He, this guy, even though he's the CEO, he knew like every product in amazing detail. I mean, this guy was definitely a, like a technical architect, but just knew every product and could speak so intelligently. Like he worked in it every day. Mm. That's I, yeah, he's awesome. amazing. I mean, yeah. I've never seen a CEO of a tech company like that ever. 
Well, now not to that level. I mean, there's, there's, there are technical CEOs, right? But mm -hmm. this guy just took it to a whole different level. I mean, he, he had to be in his IDE every day. Yet he's running a, you know, what, a $10 billion company, basically, the size of AWS now? Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. Anyway, uh, let's see. I have more. Okay, let's go. Dead air, John. <laughs> Uh, you know, this is just you know more of a it. this is just more of a tip for those of you that use JetBrains. Oh, um, John's tip. Uh, I didn't know this existed, but JetBrains has, and I'll put it in the show notes, has a IDE features trainer. So it's a little plugin that you can use that kind of walks you through all the different features that you can use, so you can get to know your IDE better. Um, That's interesting. Yeah, I think Illuminated Cloud should have one of those. Yeah, <laughs> uh, basically because I've 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 gotten good at it and I've gotten used to it, but I still don't know all the shortcuts. I just don't know all the hotkeys and I still don't even know all the cap all the feature capabilities. Oh, I don't either. I mean, it's funny I, that I'm in that tool at least six hours a day. Yeah. And I, I feel like I'm somewhat of a power user, although there are people that I watch. I'm like, wow, you blow me away in terms of like, just I've got, you know, a couple of dozen keyboard shortcuts probably memorized that I, mm -hmm. they're my go-tos, but there are so many more and there are, I mean, there's just so many features that I just still, I know I haven't scratched the surface. It's crazy. Yeah. Well, I, I will spam say, my reformatter key all the time. I type and spam. I type spam. I have, um, yeah, I guess you can do that. Um, I also have, it is a part of my builds, like a just automatic source format. Oh, I could do that. It's just, I like, I don't know why. Yeah. Because sometimes I'll ignore typing spaces and then I'll just hit my formatter just, just so it'll put it in for me so sometimes it's just me being lazy and typing but that's why i developed that habit do you have like an editor like a dot file editor config is that what it is uh, no you can put you can um put it in your projects and like in the source code let's oh. say that let's say that you worked on a you work you have a i don't know some open source project or something you work mm -hmm. on um and you're not you're very particular about the, the how the code's formatted you can put like i think it's dot editor config then the project, and then most of these IDs know how to read that. Oh, cool. And when they, when you're working on that project, it just automatically changes. Like if you did like a formatting or, you know, that, you know, mm -hmm. was it command L? Shift command L? And Alt command L. Alt command L. Um, option. It's going to, it's going to use the rules to find in that editor config. That's pretty cool. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Um, so that was, that was one. Uh, so I, I don't know if we have time. But there was a couple of things I was going to talk about. One of them being, uh, this was on Reddit, and I thought it would be an interesting discussion for you and I to have, but it's, uh, what are the pros and cons of outsourcing Salesforce developers and admins? What does outsourcing mean, first of all? You have to define that. Well, meaning instead of having in-house an in-house admin and in-house developer working on your Salesforce instance, you hire a consultant or agency to come in and do that work for you. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> it just, I, mean, I don't know. Boy, there's so many. I have so many questions. It, it depends. I mean, that's the answer. <laughs> there's there always it depends, but I mean, the, the if you had to do kind of like a pros and cons list, what would be your let's just say your pros? I mean, so when I think of like our company, I mean, I think the the pros are, you know, we we bring a a set of skills and experience, and not only just experience with products and just over time, but also across all kinds of organizations. Mm -hmm. That you just can't, you, it's hard to get as a, you know, unless you have all that. And I mean, like a giant company might, right? They might have. Yeah. But as, you know, some of these consulting companies, I mean, probably do. And it may be hard to find them because there's a lot of bad consulting companies too. 
but they, 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 they can do that. I mean, they can, they can bring a team that just, you know, oh, you need some Einstein analytics. Oh, you need some marketing cloud. Oh, yeah, we've done this across, you know, 10, 10 different organizations in your industry. And let's, I can show you, we can talk about like the best way to do it or what everyone else is doing and how you might want to do that or how you might want to do something different. Mm-hmm. You can't get that in-house. Yeah. And yeah, it's expensive. It is expensive. And, and that may not, may not be what you need all the time. But unless, unless you're a big organization with a lot of budget, it's hard to get that in-house. Yeah. So that's one benefit of outsourcing. Yeah. I'd say so. Um, a lot of downsides, though. Um, unless, it's, unless it's a person or company that you're going to have a long-term relationship, they're not going to know your organization real well in your business, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Now, if you're if you if this if this is something going to be something long term, I mean, it does I think it does pay to in, to invest in those kind of relationships. And just because it's just because it's a, a ten ninety nine or a or an outside relationship instead of a W two employee doesn't doesn't necessarily mean it's not pretty darn valuable. Um, but yeah, that's one of the downsides. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's th- things like terminology and things that just that you do specifically in your industry or things that you do in house. Yeah. You're yeah. you're kind of IP, right? And you know, whether it's Salesforce or, or any other kind of enterprise system, I mean, you go from one organization to the next, and it's amazing how differently they use these these systems. Yeah, and there's just it's hard to cookie cutter, right? From one to the from one to the next, you know. That's why it's so hard to create to create things like you know, packages yeah. and products that serve these things because it's you know you really have to figure out. And this is a, this is a hard job for product managers, but what are what is the general set of features that I can hit by you know my eighty twenty and what needs to be customized and, you know, what doesn't and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. What, are the, what are the knobs and levers and buttons that this product needs? Because if you, you know, it's just very hard to get that right. Yeah, absolutely. And, and if you, you know, if you don't have enough of the knobs and buttons, then it's a problem. And if you have too many of the knobs and buttons, it's a problem. It's another problem. You might <laughs> probably, just, probably just go out of business because it's too much work. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you can't get it to work right. Um, outside people are going to be more expensive. That's, I think we already said that. That's yeah. the downside. But the value you get from that may be much greater than maybe maybe just worth it. You know, it's like oh, yeah. I'm trying to think of an example. I mean, some sometimes the better things are more expensive, but they're worth more, which is why you buy them. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, th- I think one pro of outsourcing is um, they're kind of, they kind of exist outside of your kind of political bubble. I mean, a lot of times intern- there's a lot of internal kind of politics, oh, yeah. a lot of internal mm-hmm. kind of navigation of, of things and issues. Not only can you get the outside perspective, but you can get someone who's not involved in that. And, and for some reason, when you're paying an outside consultant, they're, what they say, to, it just has more weight. Yeah. And you can, and, you know, the, the person on the inside that's hired or that's responsible for that consultant can kind of throw that around a little bit. And the consultant can be the bad guy. That, that's actually, yeah. I mean, that's an yeah. important part of a consultant's job is to know how to, is to know how to be the bad guy sometimes. Yeah. And also how to take blame. Yeah. That's another unfortunate part of the consultant's job. It's fine, <laughs> just blame it on me. I don't care. That's what I'm here for. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if that helps us get down the road, I don't care. Yeah. I thought of something else a minute ago. Oh, another good thing about, I guess, when it comes to like a consulting company uh, is you're somewhat immune from um, losing a person. So let's say you, you know, if you have just a, a someone in house, like a, you, you know, hiring an in-house expert, it's fine. But at some point, they're going to leave your company for some reason or another, probably, right? Mm-hmm. And it can be really difficult to replace that person. 
Whereas um, a consulting company can, you know, split your needs across a, a team. And so you can have a handful of people that are, that, that, that you build a relationship that are familiar with your organization, all the quirks and the systems and all that kind of stuff. And so, sure, the consulting company might lose a per- one of those people, but they've got other people too that they, that they have, you know, so there's continuity and they can right. then bring someone, if they need to bring someone else onto your team, then they can do that. But they can split time across a team of people instead of, you know, instead of you having a one forty hour a week person, you might have, um, you know, three consultants at a consulting company that right. all spend a little bit of their time on on your organization, which provides you some continuity. Yeah, it's also the, that's the consulting company's; it's their burden at that point. Right. If they lose someone, it's their it's their responsibility to continue providing the services that you contracted for, and so they have to you know they have it's their job to go hire all the. To all, the, all the right people, and have con- and to have a you know a t- team put together that, that does give that continuity. So that's again really valuable. If yeah, if, again, if you want to bring that on yourself, then well, you may only be you may just you may only need a forty hour a week you know w- like one full time person. So you, you know all your eggs are in that one person's basket. Right. Yeah. What about for just having an employee? I mean, what is the pros of that? I mean, I think you have control over them. They're less expensive. And if you if you're just looking at you know dollars spent, yeah. I, for me, one of the pros is the ability to explore and experiment. Uh, I know when I was kind of full time at a, at a big enterprise company, one of the things that I could do was I could spend a lot of time prototyping, experimenting, and working with other people to try to solve some issues. Um, that type of exploratory stuff as a consultant means I'm charging for every hour that I'm doing that, unless there's some kind of fixed fixed bid uh, agreement there. Um, but I mean, I remember spending almost a week to two weeks just prototyping things out, working with other teams, having tons of meetings, trying to figure out a solution before we even got to the point of architecting and putting something on paper that we were actually going to build. Um, that whole exploratory thing um, I thought was pretty valuable and would have been really expensive if we had to outsource that. Yeah. Uh, plus, there's a lot of internal ling- lingo and things like that 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 we just that were just clicking. It was it was easier to communicate, faster to communicate. Um, there's a lot of similarities, though. I mean, we still had things like document templates, and we still had bureaucracies of of approvals and sign offs, and and different teams that would handle certain environments and all that kind of stuff. So there's there's a lot of uh, overlap there between what you would do as a consultant and what you would do as an internal employee. But I think there was that cost aspect seems to be the main thing that comes back to it. I mean, you can talk about a lot of different things, but it comes back to the cost, I think. Yeah. And while we, I think while outsourcing can be expensive, depending on how big your project is and where you're at in the implementation, it can be, it can be cost effective. Yeah. Another thing I just thought of is with a consulting or an outside, you know, help is that you can hold them accountable in, in ways that you kind of can't an employee, like, you know, you can't, um, Tell your employee you're not going to pay them for the work they just did for a month. You can't, you know, you really don't have much yeah. legal, if something legal came up, yeah. um, you don't really have much legal resource against an employee, whereas you do against, you know, someone, an, an outside entity. Yeah. So, not that, you know, you ever want things to get legal, but it's business and every once in a while it's going to happen. And yeah. you might have more options if... Yeah, and that comes down to the risk. I mean, that's another con to 
the outsourcing aspect is the risk of it. I mean, I've seen that same company that I worked for did end up outsourcing their entire team to a company in India. Yeah. Um, not that the company in India is the issue. It's just that that team, um, A, had a certain budget to work under. Um, they were overworked and culturally there was an issue. Yeah. yeah. Like they would, they would, they would say yes to things that they didn't understand for some reason. And I don't know why, but well, that, that's like, that was really common where we would explain something and say, you, you got that. Mm. And they would say, yes. Sometimes they're, they're pressured to. Yeah. Uh, but, um, so there was just weird things like that with outsourcing there where there's just kind of a bit of a risk where things would take way too long. Um, we wouldn't have a lot of control over those people. So we couldn't really understand. We couldn't really dig in to find out what the real issue is of why something wasn't getting done. Yeah. Because I mean, they're, they're a separate organization, so they're, they're going to have, you know, they're like a separate cell. They're going to have a cell wall and then you can, yeah. if you want to interact with them, you know, you go to the cell wall, you don't get to go into the uh, mitochondria or the yeah. nucleus. And depending on where you're standing, the other thing is you don't have direct access to those people. So if you're a manager and you want to talk to the developer about something, yeah. you usually can't yeah. if they're outsourced. Mm-hmm. Now, if they're internal, you can you have full access to kind of... And that just depends. I mean, I think different companies have different models. Like, again, with us, I mean, yeah. our, our, we could give our clients full access to our people. I mean, for the most part, you know, depends, I guess. I don't let them talk to you. Yeah, I was going to say, I, was, you, I nearly <laughs> thought of you. You're like the anti-pattern. I, I, I love interfacing with clients. Um, no, I have been. I have been more and more lately, but I try not to. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's good. That was a good question. Yeah. All right. The last thing I had, and I'm not sure how much time you want to spend on it, but it's, uh, the things I learned trying to build multiple business rule engines. Okay. sounds like we're going to go back to the, that Salesforce developer architects article. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> uh, so I just jotted down a few things that popped into my so head. Number one, don't try to write a business rule engine. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so one of the thing I wrote is most of the work isn't in building the decision logic, but in organizing the data. Okay. So this, this is kind of like a ta- almost like table driven business logic, right? Yeah. I guess. Okay. It's yeah. data driven. Basically declarative. I mean, it's, it's gets stored in a table, but the purpose is to make it declarative. Okay. Um, Why don't you just store uh, code that you uh, evaluate on the fly? I do evaluate on the fly. <laughs> I was a kid. I mean, like actual, like eval, oh, like, e- eval some JavaScript. Eval just, some put, JavaScript. <laughs> just put the JavaScript in a, in a, in a long text field. <laughs> eval it at runtime. Uh, I did that at one point in my career. <laughs> I mean, I, we, we've all done it. We've feel, all been I feel there, pretty John. gross about it now, but I did do that at one point. <laughs> oh, I enabled scripting. Yeah. Just, exactly. Eval JavaScript. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so that, that was a big challenge is that even though I had this entire infrastructure of managing the rule set and having the rules organized and having the, the conditions and all that kind of stuff, all the functions and, and operators and all that kind of stuff, that was the easy part. The hard part was freaking getting the data to those objects, organizing it, especially in the Salesforce world where there's, you're limited on the number of queries, you're limited on how much data you can have memory and all that kind of stuff, trying to optimize that for performance in a declarative way, in a very dynamic way, meaning I don't have any hard dependencies on where that data is coming from, was a real challenge. Uh, my next point is, no matter how flexible you think you are making it, uh, your client's requirements are going to blow the thing up. Okay, that's true. And so what lesson did we learn from that? Uh, don't make it flexible. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure that's a solution, but... You don't think that's a solution? I think it's a solution. It's, it's basically the point I'm about to make. Well, if you, if you don't make it flexible, will it meet their business requirements? Yeah. It will. Okay. So the client's misguided then? The one what they're at? They're asking for too much flexibility? No, I guess what, uh, the point is that 
I got to a point where I thought I built this killer thing. It's it can really do just about anything yeah. I throw and, at and it. And then you had contact with the enemy. And then I and then I <laughs> deployed it and had them start configuring. It. I was like, oh crap, it doesn't do that. Yeah. No, it doesn't do that. I that I know I see what you need there, and that's that's a really good idea, but it doesn't do that. Right. <laughs> um, so yeah. But you didn't say you wanted that. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, the next point is uh, having a dedicated purpose-built logger is essential for troubleshooting. And what I mean by that is not just writing to the debug log. What I did is I instantiate a logger where I log certain types of transactions from the rule engine so that I can spit it out as an audit so that I can see not only I, what I can basically do is say, okay, here's a record. Now audit this, basically run the rule engine. Don't actually commit anything, but tell me what the conditions result were and all that kind of stuff. And that became huge. My first couple Just debugging and yeah, yeah, my first couple I did not do that. So whenever I got a failure report from either the client or one of our people configuring, I had to manually rerun, look, read the entire log and everything. Once I implemented this, I could run it, I could see it, and I could even give it back to them because I formatted it very specifically so it could be readable and said, okay, here's here's how you configure the rule, and here's the results, and here's the values that it evaluated, and it was just it was invaluable. Hey John, did you comment this code well? It's self-commenting. Don't self comment that code. Rewrite it. Self-documenting. You like? Have, you, have I played that one before? Don't comment bad code. Rewrite it. <laughs> I like that. I don't think I've heard that one. Yeah, I I've, I've got all these. That I don't think I've played any of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you have to find ways to inject them. Uh, the next one is guardrails are essential for protecting the user from themselves, but it also limits functionality. Yeah. So I had a few that I built where I basically said. If you want to add a field for this rule engine to be aware of it, create a pick list entry where the name is the name of the field and the API name is the name is the pick list value. Okay. And that ended up being tedious. Mm. And so I went back to just an open-ended text field, type in the name. I hope you typed it in right, because I don't have a validator on this yet. And that's what I ended up with. But yeah, I just you either have to kind of restrict it in that way or have a validator that will prevent those kind of issues. Uh, bespoke rule engines. I just wanted a reason to use this bespoke. The word bespoke? Yeah. Such a buzzword. Is it? Yeah. I think, and I always think of suits. suits. Clothing. Men's clothing. Uh -huh. Bespoke. Bespoke. As a bespoke tailored suit. You whispered it too. Like yeah. those fancy commercials. Uh, bespoke rule engine makes a better product than a general all-purpose rule engine. Uh, essentially, the more flexible the rule engine is, the more complicated it can be, and thus the learning curve is steeper. Whatever happened? Do you remember the, there was a heyday of configuration? I guess the I guess it's still a big thing now. What are those? What are, what are those become called? I mean, low um, code. Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to think. It's, there was this guy Ross Cooley who uh, ran a company. What was this called? Uh, anyway, kind of started that whole. What, oh, was it PC order? No, maybe that's what it was. I don't know. Um, I think it was PC order. They they created like this PC, like this basically product configuration engine, which they then sold to a bunch of people. Mm -hmm. But that kind of launched this whole. And there was like big machine, or was it big machines? Was that a configurator thing? But now like CPQ, like this got a yeah. Then they buy that or something. Something yeah. got bought. Out, but yeah, those are super complex, man. They are. Um. But even the kind of the, from from a general pers general purpose one, I mean, I would consider flow to be a general purpose one. 
And yeah. one of the reasons we went and built this rule engine versus flow is a performance because we could, there's certain things I can do in code to kind of enforce certain performance criteria, I guess I'll say. You can extend it with data too. That's the big thing, right? Well, I can extend it with data and I can also, because I'm, I know certain aspects of it because it's bespoke, <laughs> uh, because I put the guardrails on, I, I can say, I can say this data, I know I can cache safely. It's not going to change within this transaction, yeah. so I can cache it. So even if Salesforce reruns this trigger event that or whatever causes this to rerun, I have that performance yeah, yeah. gain. Um, also, because they're all kind of going through a central data repository, everything can grab data at any point in time, and it lazy loads it and it caches it. So I don't have to worry too much about how I got the data. Um, so I can do things like that. Yep. Um, let's see. My next one was... Uh, my rule engines so far have been forward only, meaning they don't have enough context to roll an update back if the scenario no longer exists. Uh, for instance, if someone deletes a record. So that's kind of a con of the rule engine. Yeah. That it just doesn't know enough. Like if I was writing a trigger that said, if you see this record, then go update this and, and make it say, I don't know, complete. Mm -hmm. Well, someone deletes that record that made this complete. Well, I could have code that says, oh, you deleted that. So I'm going to change this back to what it used to be. And I could do that in a trigger easy enough. Trying to get, trying to configure a rule engine to do that is kind of insane. You basically have to create a whole new rule set that says when this deletes, go and see if there's anything like this and then go change it. Yeah. So it's a bit tedious and, and more difficult than just writing a trigger that goes out and knows that context. Yeah. At some point, it, you just go back to triggers. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and my final point, uh, they are an illusion of control and are unproductive in most cases. Building a business rule engine that is declarative de declaratively configurable takes 10 times more effort than building for a specific scenario. Yes. Clients believe they want to customize this stuff, but do they really need to? That is the question that has to be asked. In our modern risk-averse society, you will be hard-pressed to get a client to admit that they do not need a declarative way to change their business logic. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason why something called Apex exists. Yeah. There's a reason why JavaScript exists and all these other things. I mean, because they're, they're just the best way to do lots of things. Yeah. The, the, the expressiveness of it, the ability to kind of really hone in that performance. Uh, I, I, if I need to pull from two or three different objects, I know the rules and I know the data requirements so I can filter those down. What I have here with these rule engines is I basically have configurable queries or views or data sets but they're so open-ended, and then I filter them down in code. Yeah. So now I have a bunch of data in memory, and I have run into the heap size limit issues that I've had to fix uh, because they were just they were just too big. Um, so just from a performance perspective, I mean, I've even though I've liked and I've learned a lot from writing these, and I'm not saying they're bad, and I'm, it's not like I'm not going to write them in the future. It's just I learned a lot about doing this. About it just kind of re reinforced how good code is over these kind of tools that allow the mutation yeah. of, of that logic. It's like the pendulum is, is already swinging back towards code. Yeah. This, it remind, this is almost like a variation of the, of the build versus buy. It's like, you might think you want to build. Yeah. But do you really? And it's like, you know, I, have, I don't know, I'm trying to give like an example. Like, I, I have a ladder that I use to change the light bulbs in the ceiling of my house. It's, mm -hmm. it's great. This ladder's great. It's perfect for the job. I could pay someone to come in and build me a Rube Goldberg machine that, you know, has some kind of light bulb supplier changer thing that on, on some kind of tracks that, that there's a, then the track goes to every light and automatically changes the light bulb when it detects it's out. You think that's going to work real well? 
I mean, I, yeah. I may come up with a great plan for it. <laughs> you draw it out, looks right. Yeah. It's just, I'm going to spend way too much money. And it's just not going to, it's not going to be, um, it's going to be brittle and just not great. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like until you try to do, you, you do a couple of those and you're like, uh, I don't know. Like, th- then you, you get a little bit more wise about it. Yeah, I feel like, like no, we're gonna we're gonna stick with what's simple and what works. This is also why, like, I nah, I don't want to get into other stuff, but I'll leave it at that. I was gonna say it sounds like you're getting into the kind of the the I'm gonna call it a failure, but the failure of IoT in the home, not IoT in in, in business, because I think that has a lot of really good and useful applications. But I think it, in the home, we were just grasping for straws to make it work. So I mean, I, also I, I think IoT is one of those worm, wor, worms words that means so many different things to different people in different contexts. You know, if you're talking to you know oil service people, um, oil services, then IoT means something to them. Or if you're someone in logistics, or if you're, but if you're talking about like consumer devices or different things, it it really means a completely different thing. It's like they shouldn't even use the same term for these things because yeah. they're really so different. Well, John, we probably should wrap up. Um, yeah. I didn't. I, can we have another super quick meeting? Sure. What do you think about like just in the show, like you know, picking out a couple of the most recent job postings and just reading them on the show as a, almost like as a um, I don't know a benefit of posting your job posting in the Good Day Sir Slack. I think that's a great idea. Okay, well, let's let's do a couple. Uh, most recent one. Um, let's see who this is. Oh, it's Penrod. Penrod is hiring a MuleSoft architect. And this person will provide experience and skill in the architecture and build of integrations and migrations between Salesforce and other cloud, on-premise, and homegrown systems within a client environment through a consultative approach. Um, let's see. Ascend Technologies is hiring someone. Hopefully these people are all following our rules. <laughs> I think they are. And they're hiring a senior uh, Salesforce consultant. And let's see. Who else? Who else is hiring? Um, Patron. Technologies is seeking, is seeking a senior Salesforce engineer, consulting engineer, I guess, architect slash architect. So if you'd like to see the details of these job postings, then you would have to go to the Good Day Sir Slack. And the way you do that is gooddaysir.com forward slash community. Or just go to gooddaysir.com and just click on community. There's a form. Sign up. It'll send an email to me and I'll add you manually. Um, Salesforce has got some, looks like uh, doing some hiring. Um, if you would want to go work for the mothership, they've got some jobs posted in there. Um, one other thing I think that would be cool. Well, actually this is just more of kind of a utility for me. Um, I have just sent stickers recently to Becca, William, Jade, Maximo, Michael, Rom, Ben, Orn, or Ernie as we call him, Cole, Jesse, Scott, Alan. That's probably getting back far enough. I'm not, some of those are more recent than others, but some of you probably haven't received it. So uh, if I just read your name, they're coming soon. If I didn't read your name, then I don't know about it. I have Leo Alves, but uh, he did not get on the most recent batch, so he'll be in the next batch. Uh, if, dear listener, if you would like some awesome Good Day Sir stickers for your laptop, your kid's lunchbox, you know, the. Or just, your, your just local watering hole, stick just up at your local pub. Yeah, yeah. Then uh, just shoot us an email, info at gooddaysirpodcast.com, and just uh, put stickers in the title or in the subject so I know what it is, and, and make sure you include your shipping address, and we can send them to anywhere in the world due to the magic of uh, various postal services. 
Um, yeah. What else, John? Oh, we also, if you, um, we we appreciate questions and feedback and and topic suggestions for the show at info at gooddaysirpodcast.com. So keep those coming. Because we're lazy and we like to get topics. That's true. You guys. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. That's all I got, John. That's all I have. And to that, I say good day, sir. You know, I didn't have a you beer today. You get nothing. You lose. Good day, sir. Namespaces are one honking great idea. And do people even do Agile anymore? I have no idea.